Tonight we were reading in Matthew chapter 5, the first part of the chapter, that contains what is known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are so called because they each begin with the word blessed. Now there are some Old Testament Beatitudes. I think of Psalm 1 verse 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. I think of the beatitude that is found in Psalm 32 and verse 1, where the Bible tells us, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. And if you go to Psalm 119, you will see there that that psalm begins with a beatitude. In fact, it begins with two beatitudes. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. Now, the word blessed simply means, Oh, the happinesses of... Oh, the happinesses of, and then you have the words that follow. Now, when we come to the Beatitudes proper, those words that are spoken by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, they're actually a summary of true Christianity. When you look at the Beatitudes individually and as a whole, they describe for us Christian character. You have here the marks of a genuine believer. I should hasten to say that these do not set forth the way to be saved. But rather they are a description of those who are already saved. Those who are the Lord's are poor in spirit. They are mournful over their sins they hunger and thirst after righteousness, and so on. These are all marks of grace. But having said that, we should always remember that true believers are like Christ. Now, they're not perfectly like Christ. Oh, that they were. It would be our desire as the Lord's people to be just like the Savior. The hymn sets forth, the aspiration of every Christian. Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer. This is my constant prayer. But it is an aspiration. We're not perfectly like the Lord yet. However, we have that wonderful promise, don't we? In First John chapter 3, where the Apostle says, in verse number 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. What he means is we're going to be perfectly like Him. I've often used this illustration, but it's a good one. It bears repetition. The great Andrew Bonner of Scotland, the Presbyterian, wrote to Spurgeon, the great Baptist in London, having had requested by Spurgeon 
his likeness. It was at the time when photographs were just starting to be produced. And he said to Bonner, I should like to have your picture so that I can remember you in prayer. And Bonner sent back to him his likeness in a photograph. And he wrote an accompanying note. And he said, this is the best likeness I can find. He said, but it looks nothing like I'm going to look like when he appears. Because when he shall appear, I shall be like him. For I shall see him as he is. Christians are imperfectly like Christ. Their imperfect graces are a reflection of the perfections of their divine Savior. Christian character is actually Christ-likeness. It's conformity to His image. And that is something that is going on with you and I all the time. The book of Romans chapter 8 tells us that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. We are more and more becoming like Him. We're not there yet, but we are a work in progress. Therefore, the graces that are outlined here in Matthew 5 are actually a picture portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about it, He has all of these characteristics in perfection. And the Beatitudes, therefore, can be looked upon as a summary of what Christ is and who Christ is. His virtues and his victory even are mentioned here. Let's think, first of all, about the Beatitudes and how they speak of certain aspects of holy character. All of them, and each of them in turn, are marks of godliness. Now what is godliness? When you say someone is godly, what does that mean? Well, the clue is in the word. Godly is godlike. Godliness is godlikeness. It's to be like God. And therefore, when we consider these traits that are found imperfectly in a believer... They are found in perfection in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's look at each virtue in turn. In verse 3, the Lord says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 4, blessed are they that mourn. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. If you take these together, they actually describe our Lord Jesus Christ In his humiliation. They are a description of the Son of God, our mediator, as it was for him when he came into the world. Think first of all of poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The actual Greek word that's employed here uh, for poor is the word pinas. It it, is... The idea behind it, destitution, so poor, so poor that one must work daily to eat that day. This person has nothing in reserve. He's someone who is really poor. Now, obviously then, 
It is referring, in the first instance, when we talk about that, that person which is poor, to someone who's physically poor. And that was true of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But just to hone in on that word. The poverty that's mentioned here is destitution. It's desperate poverty. It's the very same Greek word that Paul used when he said of our Lord Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter number 8 and verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. It's referring to destitution. And yes, it is true that Jesus was materially and physically poor in the days of his flesh. Didn't he say himself that the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head? The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. The Lord, when he was born, didn't even have a proper crib to lie in. His body was laid in a borrowed manger there as a little babe. Later on in his ministry, we see him riding into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He didn't own it. The Lord said that he had need of him and it was given over to him for his use. And then when he died, he was placed at death in a borrowed sepulchre. Belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. So the Lord was poor. Whenever he was giving an illustration about Caesar, whose inscription was on the back of the coin, the Lord said to those that were there, show me a penny. He didn't reach into his own pocket and take out a penny. He had to ask someone for a penny. The Lord was poor. And yet the greatest poverty for Christ, let us think of it this way, was in laying aside the robes of his heavenly glory and choosing the humiliation of coming to this earth in the form of a man and dying on a cross to redeem sinners. When Paul talked about that to the Philippians, he spoke of it in terms of one who was taking successive steps downward. Look at the terminology here in the Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he describes the various steps in his humiliation. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That means he did not have to grasp after deity because he was God, but made himself of no reputation. And took upon him the form of a servant. The word indicates a bond slave. And was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So these are all successive downward steps. When the Bible says he became poor... It has a far greater depth to it than merely living without wealth or money. Oh, what infinite, oh, what matchless condescension 
the eternal God displays, the hymn writer said, it was infinite condescension. One of the Puritans said, for our Lord Jesus Christ to become a man was a greater step down than for an angel to become a worm. But we think about this, his poverty, but also the fact that he mourned. Blessed are they that mourn. There's none who ever felt the grief and horror of sin like Christ. None other, none other ever has or could experience the grief and pain of sin like Christ. Why? Because He is the pure, spotless, holy, sinless One. He is without sin. It's variously described in the New Testament. He had no sin, one of the apostles says. He did no sin, says another. He knew no sin, says another. But He came to the realm of sin and He was made sin for us. And there's a great depth in that phrase. Made sin for us. Bearing our sins in His own body on the tree. And when we consider that the psalmist was able to speak several times in Psalm 119 about the horror that he felt when he looked at the sins of the wicked. And I'm thinking about Psalm 119, verse 53, verse 136, and verse 158. He talked about the horror that he felt when he saw the wickedness of men. How much more the infinitely holy Savior... The Bible tells us in Habakkuk chapter 1 that he is of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. Can't even stand to look upon sin. And yet the Bible tells us, does it not? In that great messianic chapter, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3, he's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Also we find in those verses that we studied in Mark 14, from verse 33 onwards, the experience of our Lord in Gethsemane. When he took with him Peter, James and John, he began to be sore, amazed and to be very heavy and said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. The Lord was experiencing there something that we know nothing about. The agony of soul that he felt at the prospect of human sin being laid upon him and put to his account. It was overwhelming to him, almost causing his death. That's the idea here when it says, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. There's no one who has ever felt agony of soul over sin like Jesus. None of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night that our Lord passed through, ere he found the sheep that was lost. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Meekness. That is a description of His holy person. 
When Paul wrote to the church, he said, I beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. What is meekness? Well, I can tell you meekness is not weakness. Meekness has been described as acquiescence in and submission to God's dealings with us. In other words, meekness is submitting to God's providences. And acquiescing in those. Even though it's not agreeable to your mind and heart. You submit to it as something that the Lord has for you. Meekness. It's not chafing against the rod. But it is accepting the discipline of the rod. It is actually strength under control. And meekness was illustrated perfectly in Christ. You note three references in Isaiah chapter 53 to God's dealings with Christ. These are beautiful words. They are words that we find difficult to understand as well. Because it tells us in verse 4, in verse 6, and in verse 10 of how the Father treated the Son. In verse 4 of Isaiah 53, the description is smitten of God and afflicted. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. In verse 6, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I like how the margin puts it. He hath made the iniquity of us all to meet on him. The whole aggregate of human sin of the elect laid upon Christ and punished by God on that account. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then there's the third reference to what God has done. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And I don't think it means that it gave him great pleasure like a sadistic Person, that's not what it means. When it said it pleased the Lord, it was according to his good pleasure. It, it was according to his mind that he was, as we would say, pleased to do this. He found it within himself to do this, to bruise him and to put him to grief, to make his soul an offering for sin. This is great mystery, of course. God's dealing with Christ. But what was the reaction of the Lord Jesus to this? Isaiah 53 verse 7 He was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth. He brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb so he openeth not his mouth. There's meekness. We see him in the garden. And how does he pray? Not my will, but thine be done. This is meekness. This is strength under control. This is submission to the divine will. The Apostle Peter talked about it. First Peter chapter 2, from verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. We're to be like him. What did he do? He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, 
reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Oh, how the Lord could have struck back at his oppressors in the garden, in the palace, in Pilate's house, in Herod's house, when he was being led to the cross. How our Lord could have dealt with all of his enemies very, very easily. But he was meek. Meekness is perfectly seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 11 verse 29 puts it this way. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. Poverty. Mourning. Meekness. But notice three further virtues of our blessed Savior in the Beatitudes. In verse 6, in verse 7, and verse 8 of Matthew 5. The Bible says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Again, it should be obvious to us that this really speaks of Christ. Has there ever been anyone in human history who ever pursued after righteousness like Christ? Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Oh, he's sinless, pure, holy. He lived a perfect life, never doing anything wrong. And that, by the way, included his childhood. Now, I've never known a perfect child, not my own, not our grandchildren, not anyone's children that we've known, however cute they might be, however angelic they might appear to be. There's no perfect child. They all have their moments, don't they? They all have their days. They all have their times. Think of little Lord Jesus. As a toddler, walking around in Joseph's carpenter's shop, he never does anything wrong. He never disobeys. He never speaks back. He's never surly. He's never complaining. Why? Because he's the perfect son of God. Surely when Mary and Joseph saw him going around in their own home and in their own lives from day to day, they must have thought, how different is this child? Mary knew that he was the Son of God. So did Joseph. They were both told that before he was born. That holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Mary knew all about that and she could see it before her eyes as this child was growing in stature. Even at the time when he was staying behind at the temple in Luke chapter 2 and they were out of their minds with worry, looking for him, thought something had happened to him and came and sort of chided him by saying, did you not realize that my father and I have sought thee sorrowing? And very gently the 12 year old Jesus said, wist you not that I must be about my father's business? And then the Bible is quick to tell us that he went down to Nazareth and was subject unto them. He was subject unto them. 
You know, some 12-year-olds and some that are just about to enter upon their teens are anything but subject. But there he was, living a sinlessly perfect life. He had a zeal for righteousness because he was and is pure in heart. And we see that in verse 8. And in between desiring and pursuing holiness, righteousness, and being holy within his heart, there's the characteristic of mercifulness. Blessed are the merciful. Has there ever been anyone who could be described as merciful in the same way as the Lord Jesus? He established a perfect righteousness by his own spotless life of obedience so that he might do poor sinners like you and me good. But we know from scriptural teaching that mercy can only be extended to sinners where justice is satisfied. When someone is guilty of a crime under the law of God, that crime has to be punished. The sentence has to be carried out. Mercy can only be extended where justice is satisfied. But that's what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. He shows mercy to sinners. He is the merciful one. He does that on the ground of righteousness and purity. He doesn't forget, verse 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. He upholds the law. He upholds righteousness. He doesn't ignore what God's law says about sin. He does extend mercy to sinners on the ground of righteousness. And so we read in Psalm 85 that wonderful statement in verse 7 of that psalm. Psalm 85, verse 7. Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. Then you come down to verse 10. What does it tell you there? Mercy and truth, or righteousness, are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. They're not mutually exclusive. You can't say, well, the Lord wants to be merciful, but His truth won't allow Him to be merciful, because He does uphold His truth. He doesn't ignore His law. His law is carried out to the nth degree. The Lord Jesus takes upon Him the responsibility for our sins. And in that human body, sin apart, He bears our sins. And He's punished for those sins. And therefore, He's able to be merciful to us. Mercy and truth in the cross are met together. Righteousness, moral rectitude and peace have kissed each other. This is Calvary. This is the cross. This is the work of Christ. And by the way, in verse 11 of Psalm 85, you've got a wonderful picture of Christ in His resurrection and His ascension. Truth shall spring out of the earth. Hallelujah, He's risen. And righteousness shall look down from heaven. There He is on the throne in glory. And He's making intercession for us. Truth. He is ultimately all truth, isn't He? I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. Truth shall spring out of the earth. Righteousness shall look down from heaven. He's made unto us righteousness. He is righteousness personified. Jesus had that mighty desire through his whole ministry to fulfill all righteousness. When our Lord was baptized, Matthew chapter 3 records that event. People have often thought, well, why did the Lord get baptized? After all, the Lord wasn't a sinner. We would get baptized because we've repented of our sins and we want to show forth that we're now following Christ. We're leaving the old life behind. We're risen to a new life, right? That's what we showed forth in our baptism. At least that's what I did in mine. What some people call baptism, I don't know how they could express that. But I certainly believe that when I was baptized, that's what was being shown forth in picture form. Death to sin. Risen in newness of life to follow after Christ in a new life. But that's not why Jesus was baptized. The Lord Jesus had no sin. He didn't need to be baptized to show that his sins had been washed away because he had no sins. So then why was he baptized? Well, he was baptized as an example. But also, as he put it himself in Matthew 3.15, Suffer it or allow it to be so now. That is me being baptized. John was questioning that. John didn't really think that should be happening. He said, I I really have need to be baptized of thee and comest thou to me. Why would I be baptizing you, Lord? Jesus answered and said, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. See, the Lord assumed all of our obligations in order to save us. And that involved fully satisfying the law of God for us. First, obeying its every precept for us by his life. That's what he did all the way through his life on the earth. He obeyed the law of God, earning righteousness for his people in that way, and then bearing the penalty of the broken law for us in his death. Because the law said, the soul that sinneth it shall die. The Lord takes the responsibility for our sins and suffers the penalty of death. Lived a perfect life of righteousness. Then he offered up that perfect life as a sacrifice in death that we sinners might experience his mercy. Blessed are the merciful. There is no more merciful one than Christ. Isn't that an interesting thing to read in Romans chapter 3 and verse 26 concerning our Lord To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 45, we also have some verses that are applicable here. Isaiah 45 in the Old Testament, verse 21 Tell ye and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved, 
all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, in the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified. That's a beautiful word. And shall glory or boast. The Lord's earthly life, when you consider it, you can read about it in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. It was full of acts of mercy. The Holy Ghost says he went about doing good. Everywhere the Lord went, he was healing people of their physical maladies. Everywhere he went, he was blessing people. But especially did he show himself merciful as he forgave their sins. And oh, how we rejoice in those words, Man, woman, thy sins be forgiven thee. There he is on the cross. There are two men beside him, one on either side, and to the one he extends great mercy as he pronounces, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Oh, the mercifulness of Christ. And even today we can sing, The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Blessed are the merciful. It's illustrated as a virtue that Christ possesses in an infinite way. But then consider in the Beatitudes, verses 9 through 11 of Matthew 5. Here are three more. Blessed are the peacemakers... Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, persecute you, shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. There are really two subjects brought before us here. One is peacemaking and the other is persecution. Blessed are the peacemakers. And how we can say tonight, the Lord Jesus is the great peacemaker. He has made peace for us by the blood of His cross. In fact, we are told He is our peace. But He's also the great persecuted one. One who is reviled and maligned and persecuted and rejected above all men and above any man. So here we see the cross really brought before us in these Beatitudes. When you consider it carefully, you find that in the cross there's two things. There's peacemaking and there's persecution. Peacemaking and persecution. He's reviled, he's rejected, he's railed upon by those who stand and watch. And here's a description of the life of Jesus. But it's also a description of his death at the hands of cruel and wicked men. Persecution was his lot. You know, everywhere the Lord went, he was under threat. I could show you throughout the Gospels, those occasions when they wanted to kill him. It was their intention 
For example, in Luke chapter 4, to kill him when they led him to the brow of the hill in Nazareth and would have cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way because his hour was not yet come. Persecution. All the way through his earthly sojourn. It started out with Herod, didn't it? Matthew chapter 2. We don't need to rehearse that whole story. But that was a terrible act of wickedness. In that the king at that time had all the little children in that area under two years of age done to death. Because by doing so he thought he would kill the Christ of God, the king. But you will notice how these words of the Beatitude regarding persecution were actually fulfilled in our Lord's own life. And it was persecution for righteousness sake. Just consider those various occasions when men spoke against him because of the words that he spoke. Because of the truth that he spoke. Because of the wonderful works of grace that he did. They attacked him because he spoke the truth. In Luke chapter 6, there was a man whose right hand was withered. And when the Lord told him to stretch out his hand, and his hand was restored whole, because it was the Sabbath day, the Bible says they were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. They reviled him. They said all manner of things about the Lord, just as he said here, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you. He was reviled. In chapter 11 of Luke, and verse 15, some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. They accused him of satanic activity. They persecuted the Lord. Luke chapter 19 and verse 47. He taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. Oh, how they said all manner of evil against him falsely. How often did they say things about Christ that were not true? In Luke chapter 23 and verse 2, those that accused the Lord said, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. That was a lie. Remember when Jesus said, when he was asked the question, Shall we give tribute to Caesar or not? What did he say? Show me a penny whose, whose inscription is on this coin. Caesar's. He said, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So he did not at all forbid to give tribute to Caesar. That was a downright lie. But again, we see in verse 5 of Luke 23, they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. He's a troublemaker. He's stirring up the people. That was a lie. Go down to verse 10. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And we've been studying in our morning worship services the Gospel of Mark. And in Mark chapter 14, where we are presently, we see from verse 
55 to verse 59 what I described last week as the greatest miscarriage of justice in human history. Where there were men who were brought to testify against the Lord, who told lies to witnesses whose evidence didn't even agree. What is this? Well, they're saying all manner of evil against him falsely. Just like he said in the Beatitude. He was hounded and he was persecuted unto death. They couldn't hardly wait to strip his clothing from him and scourge him and nail him to the cross by wicked hands. But in their bloodthirsty persecution, they did not realize that the one who was on that cross was a great peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. How was he a peacemaker? Because there on the cross he's bearing the sins of his people, reconciling them to God by the shedding of his blood. That's what reconciliation is. It's the making of peace. And we read of it in 2 Corinthians 5, don't we? God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. He's made peace for us through the blood of his cross. Ephesians chapter 2. He is our peace. Colossians 1 verse 20. Years ago there was a film made called The Passion of the Christ. It received all kinds of rave reviews. Well, first of all, I don't agree with the idolatry involved in such a production. But I could also say that no matter who would try to portray what happened at Calvary, they're always going to totally miss the main point. And Hollywood would definitely miss it. The Passion movie would definitely miss it. Because on Calvary, amid all the mockery and the jeers and the lashing and the cursing, amid all that men and devils could do, there was a great mystery, the mystery of the ages that was being wrought out. Hidden from our view in those hours of darkness when God entered upon this scene. It's not all about men taking him and scourging him and then nailing his body to a tree and putting it into the ground with a thud and having him hang there in agony and blood. But it's God entering upon that scene. And there, in a transaction that I cannot describe, the Father dealt with His Son as our sin-bearer. And there, our Lord Jesus Christ wrought out our salvation. The sufferings of His soul were the soul of His sufferings. And that cannot be portrayed on celluloid or by whatever means. Can't even be described. Words would fail us. Well, what happened there at the cross when Jesus cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Was the God man by that work of his on the cross bringing God and sinners together in a perfect reconciliation? As a sinner, you cannot make your peace with God, you cannot make peace with your Maker. Without Christ. You haven't the means to do it. 
You cannot bring to him anything that will satisfy him. But Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Only a pure, spotless Savior can make peace, and such is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great peacemaker. Oh, there's a lot of people, and they're, they're trying to make peace with God by doing things. Working their way to God. Involved in religion. Poor souls going to masses and confessions daily. Trying to make themselves right with God. And yet the Bible says, not of works lest any man should boast. By the cross, peace is made. It's made by the blood of the Lamb. There's a great New Testament word. You find it in Romans and other places. It's the word propitiation. The thought behind it is of a sacrifice that turns away divine wrath. It satisfies God. That's why they called the mercy seat the propitiatory. The blood was sprinkled upon it. It is by the blood that peace is made. One of our hymns says this. By Christ on the cross peace was made. My debt by his death was all paid. No other foundation is laid for peace. The gift of God's love. Christ our peacemaker. And recently we were studying in the tabernacle. And one of the things that we looked at was in the book of Leviticus, the peace offering. You may remember that. In Leviticus chapters 3 and 7. The peace offering. And when we study it, we discover that part of that offering was burnt on the altar. Part of it was given to the priest. And another portion was eaten by the one who offered the sacrifice. And there's a threefold representation there. You have a representation of God, where it's wholly burnt on the altar. Christ, where there's a part that's given to the priest, and the sinner who partakes of part of it. This is what the Lord has done in the cross. In the cross, God is satisfied. In the cross, Christ himself is satisfied as our priest. We learn this, don't we, from Isaiah 53, where it says, He shall see his seed he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And then, of course, the sinner is satisfied. Christ is enough. And I can say tonight what satisfies God and what satisfies Christ will satisfy me as I come to him in faith and repentance. Christ in his own person and work is our Peace. What a great peacemaker our Lord is. I know that everyone that hears my voice could say that they enjoy peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know anything of this, then come tonight and be reconciled to God by the death of His Son. He perfectly represents in His person and work 
the Beatitudes that he spoke in Matthew 5. What a wonderful picture, portrait of Christ we have here. And may the Lord bless our meditation. Amen.